Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to the Muslim Matters Podcast. I am your host, Zainab bint Yunus, and our guest today is an incredible female scholar, Sheikha Zainab Ansari. Sheikha Zainab Ansari serves as adjunct instructor at Boston Islamic Seminary and a full-time instructor at Taysir Seminary, where she teaches classes on Islamic law, Quran and Hadith studies, and prophetic biography, American Muslim history, and women in Islam. She also serves on the boards of the Taysir Foundation and the Muslim community of Knoxville. Sheikha Zainab, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Most welcome. It's my great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Our topic is a heavy one. Uh, as we all know, there have been almost two months now of ongoing genocide in the city of Gaza, while the rest of the people of Palestine continue to experience the terrible oppression under the Israeli occupation. And it has been such a time of change and grief and sorrow, but also of inspiration and spiritual challenges and spiritual uplifting as well. And I'd like to delve into that in a little bit more detail as we discuss how we can spiritually process the ongoing events in Palestine right now. But to set the stage, can we can you speak a little bit to why it is that we as Muslims care so much about Palestine? Why we hold it in such sacred awe? Absolutely. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi taslima assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala barakatuh to our dearest Ustada Zainab and the entire team at Muslim Matters and our audience. So I, I want to to begin with a reminder that it's very important for us to think about language. And the reason why I'm, I'm saying that is because I really believe that there is a connection between how we are processing the, the tragedy in Gaza and Palestine and the language that we actually use to describe this the sacred geography of those lands. So my first piece of nasiha, of, of advice to the audience is that we have to number one, consider the significance of Al-Quds and Bayt Al-Maqdis. For example, if we are tempted to use terms like, especially for those involved in interfaith work, if we want to use terms like Temple Mount or Jerusalem, we have to understand that Al-Quds is an Islamic city. This is the first and original Qibla. So, it's very important that we refer to the city itself, the sacred geography, as Bayt al-Maqdis, as al-Aqsa. It's very important that we, again, remind ourselves and those with whom we are speaking and hopefully inviting people to understand the balanced and correct perspective on this issue that language and framing matter that these are Muslim lands that belong to a Palestinian Muslim majority until European 
Jewish immigration artificially changed the demographics. So we need to read the Quran and reread it, noting the numerous references to the Holy Lands. And of course, the ayah, the ayahs in particular, in chapter 17, Surat al al one who took his servant by night from the al Masjid al Haram, from the sacred mosque, i.e., in Mecca, the, the Kaaba in Mecca, ila al Masjid al Aqsa, to the farthest mosque, in Bayt al Maqdis, in al Quds, whose surroundings we have blessed so that we may show him, i.e., the Prophet, some of our signs. Indeed, he alone is the all hearing, all seeing. So for me, this really begins with thinking about the language that we are using to describe the area, the country, the people, the region, the sacred geography. And then also one more thing to also consider in the hadith of the prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, what he said about the land and the people and the significance on the authority, for example, I'll give you a hadith right here. This is in the Sunan of uh, Abi Dawood and the Musad of Imam Ahmed and Ibn Majah and Bayhaqi on the authority of Maymuna bint Sa'ad. She was a companion, radiallahu ta'ala anha. And, and, and she said, Ya Rasulullah, tell us about Bayt al-Maqdis. So the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it is the land of resurrection and gathering. Visit it and pray in it. Since praying one prayer in that location is like a thousand prayers and other messages. So Maymuna said, what if I'm not able to go there? And the Prophet said to the present it with or send oil so as to light up its lamps. And whoever does that is like someone who has visited it. So that's really the piece that I want to start with, because I think that when we reflect on the sanctity of the land and the karamat and the status of the people, recognizing this is the land of prophets and messengers and martyrs and saints, I think it really helps us to have that 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 proper perspective. Jazakallah khair for laying down that foundation in such a beautiful way. And it's a reminder again as to why we hold the Palestinian cause so dearly to our hearts. It's not just a it's not a secular cause, is what I want to say, at least not for Muslims. And I know that in interfaith work and in activism work, there there are a lot of tendencies to say, this isn't about religion, this is just about humanity. And obviously, we are the first to say, of course, the humanity of everyone there matters. But we do have, as an ummah, whether or not we are Arab, whether or not we are from any part of the world close to Palestine, we still have a truly special spot in our hearts for Al-Bayt Al-Maqdis, for Al-Quds, for Al-Aqsa, because of everything that you have just mentioned. So JazakAllah khair for sharing that. And so having that in mind, given the horrifying videos and pictures that so many of us are consuming daily now, at least I know for myself and many of my friends, first thing in the morning, we wake up and we're checking the updates. We're witnessing the just the horrifying, horrifying images of bombings and videos of children who are bleeding and so much more, right? And it is very heavy and it is very difficult for us to see this. Obviously, it is so much worse for those who are literally experiencing it. But for those who are struggling to to process all of this and are asking questions such as, why is Allah allowing this to happen? 
why is there not divine intervention and angels being sent down to destroy the Israeli army and, and free Al-Aqsa once and for all? How do we process the ongoing genocide in Gaza and the ongoing occupation and endless violence in the rest of Palestine? Yes, again, a very heavy topic, a very difficult one. So let me just begin by, first of all, acknowledging for all of us that we're just, we're being inundated with these very graphic images and scenes and videos. And I think that, first of all, we have to start by considering that we're seeing all of this, that all of this is really, it's unfolding in real time. Any one of us who has access to a device, to an internet connection is able to actually see the suffering and the hardship and the death and destruction. So first of all, we have to consider that there's a difference um, in this situation because in other, in, in, in past conflicts, I'm, and I'm hesitant to use the word conflict because conflict, the term conflict, it presumes that there's fault on both sides. And this is not the case here. This is a clear cut case of tyranny and oppression committed by the Zionists, innocent victims in Palestine. Let me be very clear about that. But what's very different about the situation, my dearest uh, Ustad Zainab and our listeners, is that unlike, for example, uh, say I think about Afghanistan many years ago. Of course, this has been an ongoing uh, calamity there. Mm-hmm. But when I was coming up, I've been going back to that, maybe a bit older than you, Ustad Zainab. When I was coming up, this was a situation that all of us were, it was foremost on our minds, was happening in Afghanistan because there is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the emergence of the Mujahideen. So we would hear these things about the atrocities the Soviets were committing against the innocent Muslims in Afghanistan, but the we weren't seeing that, the visual aspect of it. It wasn't, this is before the, the age of social media and the iPhone and all of that. Number one, what I would really encourage us to think about, and this is Nasiha that I give myself, first and foremost. And I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I'm not saying do not follow what's happening. This is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying dismiss what's happening and go on about your business. This is not what I'm saying. But we have to, number one, consider that if we want to help ourselves to process this in a way that's going to hopefully lead to some uh, something beneficial in all of this from a spiritual standpoint, that we have to be careful how much we are consuming, because the thing is, if we are con- consuming, look, and by say consuming, if we are looking constantly at a steady stream of images of carnage and death and destruction, what's going to happen? As human beings, as people with hearts and compassion, and we can see and we can hear and we see, we understand what's happening, the result of this is that we're going to become so enraged because the reality is that we cannot at this point we we can't we don't have a Salahuddin al-Ayyubi to call up an an army and to defend Palestine we need to understand that there has to be a way that where we're following it but there's also going to be action action that we undertake as individuals and as a community and this, the, the spiritual steps that we are going to take to help us understand this, because what is happening in Palestine, this is the, the literally in front of us, we have the problem of the existence of evil and suffering. And now we had to figure out what to do about this, because 
this is no, this is not something that's philosophical. It's not abstract. Mm-hmm. In other words, when we think about theodicy, what is theodicy? Theodicy is that aspect of theology or the, the theologian grapples with the question of why does God allow evil and suffering to take place without directly intervening in that situation? This is a dilemma that theologians and philosophers have been grappling with for millennia. But this is not an abstract intellectual exercise. We're actually seeing this. We're seeing the the evidence of this evil and this evil that's being enacted against the Palestinians, and we feel helpless. What I'm saying here is that it's very important for us to consider that if we are going to, to be viewing all of this, number one, how do we think about this? How do we think about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And what steps do we take to fortify ourselves so that we can be in a position to address this? So that's really where what I'd like to start with when it comes to that particular question. I think we obviously do need to address more specifically this problem of the existence of evil and suffering, but I wanted to start with that point. Thank you for that. And again, it does you do a really great job just laying down those, those spiritual foundations um, in framing all of this. And I really appreciate that you mentioned that following without consuming to the point of paralysis because that doesn't help anybody, right? It doesn't help us individually, spiritually. It doesn't help the Palestinian cause either if we're just so overwhelmed that we're unable to function uh, when what they need is for us to continue to be strong and to take action in, in the ways that we can, whether it's sharing on social media or signing a petition or protesting or whatever else it may be. And this next question is going to tie into this as well. How can we properly understand the role of qada and qadr and what's happening when we know that everything happens because Allah allows it to happen, right? So how can we, in a simple way or as simply as it can be expressed, really wrap our minds around this, understand or internalize what it means to accept the qadr of Allah and truly, I think what is fascinating for, for many of us is that while we who are not living this difficulty are grappling with this question, we are also witnessing the absolute powerhouses of Iman, of the people of Gaza and the people of Palestine, whose constant words are dhikr of Allah and saying alhamdulillah ala kulli I don't think any of us have at this point not seen videos of parents who have lost all their children or even children themselves who have lost their entire families who are not simply reciting alhamdulillah ala kulli hal. and maybe you have some insight on that as well like how is it that the people experiencing the genocide are content and have rida with the qadr of Allah while we who are in places and positions of privilege and safety are finding ourselves shattered in many ways. Yeah, the, subhanAllah, a very profound question, a very important question. Muhammad, it's a few things there. First of all, we have to understand, and I want to start I want to start with an ayah for this particular question. We're going to look at some of the ayahs in the Quran, because I think this is just very helpful. And this is what I always say to my students that because I've had so many questions about just this issue, that this is happening in front of us. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, and Allah ta'ala is merciful and compassionate and gentle. 
and yet we're seeing these very difficult things. How do we reconcile our beliefs about these beautiful attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the reality that the, this this catastrophe is unfolding in Palestine. And I've had people say to me that it is, it's impacting their iman. And I think it's very important, as you're noting, Ustada Zainab, that we are looking at this from our very comfortable, privileged position here in the West, while the Palestinians that are directly experiencing this destruction and as you noted, I mean, literally you have parents that are burying their children after digging them out from under the rubble with their bare hands. You have physicians performing surgery, amputations without anesthesia on their own children. It just, it boggles the mind. So this is where I, we want to be very clear what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran about the problem of suffering. Here is one ayah, for example. This is verse 214. Do you think you will be admitted into paradise without being tested like those before you? They were afflicted with suffering and adversity and were so violently shaken that even the messenger and the believers with him cried out, when will Allah's help come? Indeed, Allah's help is always near. Dear brothers and dear sisters, Please understand that if we look at the Qur'an, we will find all the answers to our questions, I promise you. Where does it say in the Qur'an that this dunya is an abode of uh, comfort, an abode of luxury? Where does it say that we're not going to be tested? Where does it say that we're not going to have trials? Again, we have this idea that everything should be ease and comfort. And this is just not based in reality. This is not the Quranic paradigm or worldview. And there are any, there are a number of ayahs that I can bring, but I really want to emphasize this fact. Again, because I've had questions like this. I myself have said, how do I think about this? Because all of us, and let me just say this, many of us, even if we don't vocalize it, but many of us do have this, this kind of notion of, of a benevolent creator that would require that creator to directly intervene in the affairs of human beings. And we'd be very careful with this because this is not the proper understanding of the nature of the divine as presented in the Quran or in the Sunnah of the Prophet. The reality is that whether it's this current catastrophe, or whether it's in situations in the past, whether in, in modern history or pre-modern history, where the believers were subjected to sometimes absolutely horrific treatment at the hands of the polytheists or the disbelievers. And they had to bear and endure that tribulation. And the Quran is very clear about this. For example, whether even predating the, the seerah of the Prophet, his biography. So look at the example of Surah chapter 85. And Allah is really reminding the Muslims, i.e. the Prophet's community, that are reading the Surah at that time and learning the Surah. May the people of the ditch be destroyed. A fire fed with fuel, when they sat by that fire. And they witnessed what they were doing 
against the believers. So this is actually, this is something that predates Islam, but it's revealed in the Quran. And this is an example of a previous community that they were tormented and persecuted and they were cast into this ditch, into this fire because they were people of faith. And one of the things that we know about this story is that we are told that there are only a few instances in human history when um, an infant was actually blessed by Allah Ta'ala in a a miraculous way to speak. One of them, of course, is Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, speaking as an infant to exonerate his his mother's innocence, Sayyidina Maryam. And another example is this example of, of probably an early Christian community being persecuted for their faith, and they were cast into the this ditch. And there's this moment where the mother is holding her child, and she's about to renounce her faith because she doesn't want to be cast into this fire with her baby. And the baby actually speaks to reassure the mother to not waver from her faith. So I want our audience to understand as heart-wrenching as it is to see in real time what is happening to the innocent men, women, children, and babies of Palestine, that we have to go back to the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. And nowhere in those sources of guidance are we promised that we are going to have what we want in this dunya in terms of unending comfort and and respite. It's really important to understand this point about ibtila, about trial and tribulation, and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as our prophetic hadith tells us, that Allah tests the ones that are the most beloved to him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Thank you so much for that beautiful, eloquent explanation for us. And I'm so glad that you brought up Ashab al-Ukhdud in particular, because Honestly, I was going to bring up the the next question was going to be, how do we draw parallels between what's happening now, whether it's in Palestine or even Sudan, what's happened in Afghanistan before, what's still happening in Yemen even, right? The, The tragedies that and the injustices that are being perpetrated against so many believers. And of course, the, the Rohingya Muslims and what they're going through and the Uyghur Muslims and what they're going through and the people of Syria and what they're going through. And we have examples from the past, as you said, Ashab al-Ukhdud, we have Fir'aun and Bani Israel. So when we look at those stories, how can we draw parallels between the stories of the past and the calamities of the present? And what can we learn about what it means to be patient but not passive in the face of injustice? Absolutely. Muhammad. So we there are so many parallels. And as you spoke with Sada Zainab, I was just reminded, look at all of these situations. The Ummah is in dire straits. That's the reality. And of course, we are focused on Palestine because of the centrality of Bayt al-Maqdis, Bilad al-Sham, al-Aqsa. This is every single Muslim. We are united around the situation in Palestine. But it doesn't mean that we are not thinking about the, Uyghur, the Uyghur Muslims. We're not. It doesn't mean that we're not thinking about the Rohingya and Afghanistan and Sudan and so many different, Kashmir, there, Somalia, Syria. There are so many different so many places in the muslim world just where again there's the the suffering and misery and it seems like 
it's not being alleviated. So we, what I want to remind all of us in the beginning with myself, and of course, even if we go back years, Afghanistan, this is ongoing. It, it goes back to subhanAllah, I think even before I was born, so talking about basically the 19, mid-1970s or so, I think about when I came of age, there there was the genocide in Bosnia-Herzegovina. For a lot of us, that was, we were first really discovering the fact that you had an indigenous Muslim population in, in Europe. So when we consider what's looking, when you think about what's happening in the Ummah, this is where I want to remind, I want to remind our audience that the Prophet predicted so much of this a long time ago. Remember, part of prophecy, part of this sort of the mission of Nubuwa is that the Prophet is going to be given some glimpses into Adam al-Ghayb or the world of the unseen. So we have to go back to these references. We have to go back to these sources of guidance to be, to, to be able to understand whether it is what's happening today in the modern Muslim world or it's what happened earlier. For example, think about 1258, the, the fall of Baghdad, when the Mongols, they overswept the Muslim world. And, you know, and I think about scholars like Ibn Taymiyyah and others and the soul searching that they embarked upon to try to understand why is this happening? So I'm going to take you, I want to mention a couple of hadith of the Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam. And he said, this is in uh, the Arba'in Nawawiyyah, this is hadith 28. And he, and this is a beautiful, heartfelt hadith. So what does this mean? It was narrated on the authority of Abu Said, the messenger of God delivered an admonition that made our hearts fearful and our eyes tearful. We said, oh, messenger of God, it is as if this were a farewell sermon, so advise us. So he said, so what does the hadith mean? The prophet said, I enjoin you to have taqwa of Allah, fear and awe and reverence and obedience. Have taqwa of Allah and that you listen and obey, even if a slave is made a ruler over you. He among you who lives long enough will see many differences and divisions and discord. So it is upon you. It is your obligation to observe my sunnah and the sunnah of the rightly guided caliph successors. This means hold on to this for dear life. Holding on to them with your molar teeth is the language of the hadith, and that means hold on to this for dear life. Beware of newly invented matters for every innovation is an error. And then here's another hadith of the Prophet. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So from this first hadith, hadith 28 in the Arba'in of Imam Nawi, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is telling us, O Muslims, O believers, O Ummah of Muhammad, والسلام, not become disunited. Fear God and stay together and be united under one ruler, even if a slave should be that person ruling over you and adhere to the sunnah. And the reality, Ustad Zainab and our listeners, is that we know that there's going to be the period of rightly guided caliphate, but after that, we're going to have dynasties. And there's going to be a departure from this guidance. And there's going to be disunity. And that is predicted by the Prophet وسلم, in another hadith, which I'm going to share. And let's think about this. Our ummah is at, what are the numbers? Two billion strong, all right? The state of Israel is surrounded by, what, 22 member nations of the Arab League? Mm -hmm. Hundreds of millions of Muslims? 
All right, so let's listen to, there's another hadith that I want to share with you all. So let's take a look at this one. عن ثوبان قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم. So what does this hadith mean? Thoban reported that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said, "Soon the nations will be summoned to you, just like one is invited to a feast." It was said, "Will we be few in that day?" The Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said, "No. Rather, you will be many in that day." But you will be scum, i.e. like such flowing, i.e. like it means like the, the surf. The, the foam on the waves. Foam. Because I don't want, let's not misconstrue, it means the foam. Better translation. It's like the foam that flows down a torrent. You don't really think about it, right? That foam, we just view it as it not being not significant, it's dismissed. So rather you'll be many in that day, but you will be like that foam flowing down a, tor a torrent or a wave. Allah will remove your esteem from the chests of your enemies and Allah will insert feebleness into, into your hearts. And what said, O Messenger of God, what is this feebleness? The Prophet said, love for the worldly life and hatred of death. So I want us to understand that, and please don't misconstrue the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ is not saying that our, our lives are without value or worth. This is not what he's saying. But he's saying in the sight of the quote-unquote, what we would call to the international community, this is exactly what's happening. Our numbers are numerous. As I said, Israel is surrounded by hundreds of millions of Muslims. But look at what is happening all over the Muslim world. Our numbers are many. So this is literally, it is a prediction a prophecy of the prophet that is actually unfolding right now. These are heavy words, but they're a reminder to us of the truth of the words of Rasul. And he never left us a prophecy without giving us advice as well on how to handle the situations, whether it is the coming of the Dajjal or times of fitna in general. So in light of that, to provide us with something to focus on, what would you say are a few necessary action items that we can really devote our time and energy to spiritual action items as well as activism oriented absolutely so i'm so for our dear audience we don't give in to despair i'm not i did not offer this analysis so that we would fall into despair as muslims we are not fatalistic so let's talk about qada and qadar we have to understand that allah ta'ala's knowledge is ancient his power is without limit. Nothing happens outside of the will of God. We'd be very clear about this. This is the aqidah of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah that we understand, as Ustad Zainab noted here, we understand that the when you look at the qadr, that all of it is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the good of it and the bad of it. All right? So that means that we have to understand that. Allah Ta'ala writes things, preordains everything. Even what we're seeing right now, this is not outside of the will of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And I'll give you an example from theology. This is an example that you find in discussions of, of theology and, and qada and qada. You look at men like Abu Bakr and Abu Jahl, polar opposites, right? Allah Ta'ala had knowledge of their actions. Allah knew that Abu Bakr would become uh, from amongst the best of believers and Abu Jahl would remain a staunch opponent of the Prophet, peace be upon him, 
right? Allah Ta'ala, like this was part of Allah Ta'ala's knowledge. This was part of uh, Allah Ta'ala's will for these uh, two individuals. And Allah Ta'ala uses his power to unfold his irada or his will in the lives of human beings. But what about the issue of rida? Allah Ta'ala's pleasure. Is Allah Ta'ala pleased with Abu Bakr? Yes. Is Allah Ta'ala pleased with Abu Jahal? No. So there's, there's the issue of rida. And I want everyone to understand this. Just because things are unfolding this way and these crimes are being committed by the Zionists, it doesn't mean that Allah Ta'ala is pleased with that. So those actions, we have to be very clear about this. We have to be very clear. And the end is for those who are people of piety and righteousness. This is precisely why Yawm Al-Qiyamah exists. This, is, this whole situation is precisely why there is a day of judgment and there's a heaven and there's a hell. So as Muslims, we do not shrug our shoulders or fall into despair and give in to fatalism. We have to understand that there are things that we can do. And I want every let's be very clear on this point. The Dajjalic Pharaonic system that's in place today, this so-called world system that's in place today that is enabling this, it is set up so that basically we think that we are helpless and that we are impotent. Now, of course, I shared the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. It is a certainly it's a description of it's a description of what's to come, and we're seeing this. It's happening all around us, but it's not intended for us to fall into despair. Because remember, when we fall into despair, that's exactly what the structures and the uh, of of uh, and the the sort of perpetrators of oppression. That's what they want us to do. Like Benjamin Netanyahu wants nothing more than for us to fall into despair. So our response is we look at the Palestinians and we say we are going to learn from them. They are our teachers when it comes to iman, faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and not falling into despair. When it comes to thinking well of God, especially for our young people that are grappling with issues of faith, the Palestinians literally are showing us how to have husna wan billahi ta'ala, how to think well of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You don't, we don't find the Palestinians imprecating against Allah ta'ala. They're not committing blasphemy. They're not losing their faith. These are truly God's chosen people. It is the people in Gaza. So in terms of what we should be doing, and I know it might sound like advice that you've heard elsewhere, but it certainly bears repeating because we are people of Iman. We need to come back to our faith. We need to be sincere and consistent in our prayer. We need to be constantly invoking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the time to do that. And these are not the actions of, it doesn't mean that when you do these things, it's because you're helpless. No, you are doing these things and we are doing these things precisely because we understand the long view of this. And the long view is that there is a Yom Al-Qiyamah where the, the Iron Dome of the Zionists and the American-made Hellfire missiles are useless. It reminds me of the hadith that the dua at the time of the Hijrah is like the arrow that doesn't miss its mark. And that's far more powerful than any missile that the Zionists could attempt to throw. Absolutely. And, and there's the dua. So we need to, and absolutely getting up to pray, to Hajjud. This is, we need to make sure that we are 
uh, renewing this practice. And if we don't have this, we need to establish it. These are the actions we need to be taking. And I and also you mentioned Sister Zain of the Dua. The Prophet, he again, he's predicting what's going to happen towards the end of time. But and he but he gave us things to do and du'as to say. So this is why we should actually be saying in our prayer, after we say our, our tashahud and salawat, before we say the concluding taslim in our prayer, the concluding salam. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min adabi jahannam wa min adab al qabr. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from the punishment of hell, the torment of the grave, the trial of living and dying, and from the evil trial of the Dajjal, the Antichrist. So this is my nasiha. And of course, this is also the fact that we have to speak. Let's We're not going to be silenced. I don't care what resolutions Congress they're passing on behalf of the Zionists. We are not going to submit to this. We are going to continue to remind the world of the beauty and the value and the worth and dignity of Palestinian lives. And we say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And we ask Allah Ta'ala to allow us to witness that in our lifetime. Truly, that's one of the most powerful things we have in our favor. And I'm so appreciative that you've reminded us of this, that you've given us specific adaya that we can say. And of course, there's so many different du'as that we can find within the sunnah of Rasulullah And of course, the du'a from the heart is, Allah knows what our hearts feel even more than we realize it ourselves. And so just spending that time in du'a and worship is, subhanAllah, that's one of the best things that we could do at this point. Do you have any final words or reminders to us all as we are sitting with this wisdom and with this advice? What do you leave us with, Sheikh Zainab? I think, finally, I want to say this. Our argument is not with Jews as a people. And this is, I'm assuming, most of the listening audience that this is a Muslim audience. And the reason why I say this is because I was at a city council meeting the other night and the Zionists were there and they were telling all kinds of lies and hurling accusations of anti-Semitism. And let's just be very clear. The Qur'an, if we look at the Qur'an and how the Qur'an presents the history of previous communities and civilizations, the experiences of Bani Israel, the children of Israel, and Israel, of course, is Sayyid Saddam, that those experiences are so central to the Qur'anic narrative. So it's very important for us to be very clear on this point this is about Zionism, which is an, which is a theology that is, it's a theology of oppression, it's a theology of murder, it's a theology of racism, invented by people who are atheists, by the way. So I want to be very clear on this point. The other thing that we have to remind ourselves is that look at the majority, many of the prophets and messengers whose stories are in the Quran are from Bani Israel, gave them this fadl, this blessing of prophecy and nubuwa until they were no longer eligible for that. And the nubuwa was given to Muhammad of Arabia. And I'm saying that to say that when we look at the Quran, we have to read it as not fixed in the past, but also speaking to the present and the future. And when we think about the oppression that Bani Israel certainly experienced, when we think about the suffering that they faced, 
I want us to now look at those ayahs and reread them in terms of now it is the Palestinians experiencing this. The story of Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam and Fir'aun is so central, I think, in terms of how we should process what is happening today in Palestine. So that is, is my nasiha. Otherwise, I want to conclude with anything good or beneficial that I shared is from Allah Ta'ala. Any mistakes are entirely my own. Please don't, don't hold that against me. Jazakallah khair for giving us so much of your time and your wisdom and reminding us again of the divine wisdom of qada and qadr and of the actions that we as believers, as Muslims can take and what it means to be both patient and proactive in these times of injustice. So barakallahu fiki for these amazing reminders and I pray that all of us can really sit with these words and internalize them and live them because that is what Islam is. It is a faith of living in our every day, in every moment, spending every waking second in the dhikr of Allah and doing what we can for the sake of his ummah. Of those whose du'as are accepted, may Allah have mercy on every one of the shuhada of Palestine and of every other nation that is under oppression. And may Allah let us see a free Palestine in our lifetimes. Allahumma ameen. Ameen, ya Rabbi. Ameen. Jazakallah khairah, Sister Zainab, for all the work that you do. And may, may Allah accept and may Allah, may Allah ta'ala accept the Palestinians as shuhada. Ameen. To our listeners, thank you as always for listening. Don't forget to share with your family, your friends, strangers, loved ones, and make dua for our speakers and the Muslim Matter staff. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hey everyone, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.